In this episode, the Czech billionaire politician who campaigned on an anti-corruption platform and the mysterious cash behind his luxury properties in the south of France. He injected 15 million euros into this offshore company that he'd set up and that he owned. And then he started to loan that money onto other companies that he owned. He seized some journalists as his enemies quite unequivocally. And there are lots of people who claim that if he's prime minister or if he's president, then that's a serious problem for media freedom. Also this episode, the dangers of being an investigative reporter. We were receiving like hundreds of messages daily accusing us of influencing elections and uh, that we are red. My name is Nick Wallace and this is Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP as it's known. This episode starts with a discussion about an OCCRP investigation into the former Czech Prime Minister, Andrej Babish. Babish is a billionaire businessman who made his anti-corruption drive a key part of his campaign strategy to be elected as Prime Minister. But the confidential data leak in October 2021, which became known as the Pandora Papers, revealed that before he became Prime Minister, Babish had taken 15 million euros, funneled it through shell companies, and used it to buy exclusive properties in the south of France. This is something he didn't declare when he became Prime Minister. The OCCRP article was published five days before the Czech elections, which Babish lost. The investigation was led by OCCRP journalist Pavla Holkova. I spoke to Pavla and her editor, Pete Jones, about Andre Babish, who publicly blamed Pavla for losing him the election. Five years ago, Pavla's colleague Jan Kuciak was killed by gangsters in Slovakia, so she knows how easy it is for journalists to become targets. Our discussion became a wider conversation about how best to stay safe while investigating powerful people and the way the OCCRP operates in what can be a very dangerous world. But first, I started by asking Pete and Pavla about the Babish story and where it came from. This was a project that was uh, based on a leak of a data about offshore companies shared with us by ICIJ, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, who are also behind Panama Papers. And uh, one day they just called me that, um, you know, there is Czech Prime Minister and if we are going to work on this project. And I said, sure, of course. And that's how it started. What was extraordinary, I think, about this was that his name was there in, in the Pandora Papers. Yes. He did this transaction with offshore company before he entered politics and he probably wanted to save some money. So that's probably why he put his name and he, he did not really think twice before, you know, putting his name on the papers. Right. So just explain then what this transaction was and why he appeared in these papers and the strange convoluted method that he used to buy these luxury properties in the south of France. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the beauty of these projects, right, is that these people uh, people use these offshore structures because they're anonymous. So they think their name is hidden and then you get a leak like this. And then suddenly there's the name just out in kind of broad daylight. Uh, I don't think anybody ever expected it to be revealed. But then when you find it, that's the kind of thread to pull on. 
And so this was this is basically what um, Pavla and, and uh, the people that she works with at her member centre in in the Czech Republic is what they did started to pull on the thread, and look at this company where we found where they had found Babish's name. And basically, it's 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 a pretty convoluted and complex transaction, but in relatively simple terms, he injected fifteen million euros into this offshore company that he'd set up and that he owned. But without the leak, no one would have known that it was his. And then he started to loan that money onto other companies that he owned. So the loaning the money gives this kind of like veneer of leg- of legitimacy to what's happening. So you have a loan contract that has like repayment terms and interest rates. And so he used these loans, moved them through two companies and used that money to buy to buy this mansion in the south of France. But the whole point of doing it is to effectively is to obscure the origin of the money. So no one really knows where that original 15 million euros came from. It's possible that it came from some kind of corruption or criminality or some kind of dubious background. But by the time he's buying the mansion, it looks pretty legit because it just appears to be a loan that he's received. Yeah, yeah this man was someone who had campaigned on anti-corruption measures once he entered politics. And he was a billionaire in his own right, again, before... He entered politics. So it seems strange that a relatively small sum, 15 million euros, should surface in such an obscure kind of way and then be used in this very convoluted way to buy property. It's even more even more suspicious in a way, right? I mean, we one of the important things that we do is have to kind of unpick these transactions. And it takes an enormous amount of time lo- looking through these very lengthy contracts that get drawn up and to, to cover the loans or the or the ways in which the companies are set up. And then it's really important that once we think we understand it, that we try and speak to experts to make sure that we, we really do have a good sense of what's going on. And when we went and spoke to experts, they were like, well, this doesn't make any economic sense. Like, why would you go to this degree of effort and this degree of trouble and yeah. set up this company and inject the money into that and then loan it to another one and loan it to another one? The loan contract was written in a very... I would say, cheap way, let's say, because, for example, there was no collateral mentioned. Like, you are just, you know, giving someone the loan of 15 million euros and you don't want any kind of a, you know, collateral or any kind of backup. And the loan contract was between a company that he'd set up and another company that he'd set up in a different jurisdiction? Yes, indeed. It was actually even more, more more twisted because it was between a company in British Virgin Islands to a company in Washington, but the condition was that he will immediately give the money to a company in Monaco to buy real estate. So right from the top, it was quite obvious that those money were intended to be spent on real estate and that this whole chain of companies and probably fake transactions it just, you know, it was there just to buy the real estate. Yeah. And, and and even though you were able to trace the money through this trail of companies, you weren't able to find out where the actual source of that original 15 million euros came from. Indeed. And that's a question we try to ask Andre Babish. But the only response, we, we never received any official response, even though we asked two weeks before publication date. And when we tried to ask Andrei Babish this question, we were pushed out. My colleagues were pushed out of his reach uh, by his bodyguards. Yes, I think we can actually listen to some of the audio from that because it's, it's up, you've published it up on YouTube. Have you ever had an offshore company in the Caribbean? If I say the name Blakey Finance, the year 2009, 15 million euros, does this ring a bell? I'm waiting for the Prime Minister to respond. 
I'm sorry, I'm asking a question. Prime Minister, do you want to answer? One of Babish's bodyguards then responds with, the press conference is over. Don't you understand that? You don't understand that? Go away. This is the actual confrontation between Andrei Babish and one of your journalists when she tried to ask the questions that he had so far been refusing to answer. I mean, it's, it's very interesting that a, a public figure chose to disregard the questions in, in that way, and it does add to that suspicion. When this article was published, it wasn't that long before the country went to the polls. What kind of impact did it have in the Czech Republic? Andrei Babish made a short video to his electorate saying that I lost his election because I convinced 24% of people to change their mind and, and vote for someone else. That's absolutely nonsense, of course. So, sorry, when you say you, you personally? Yes. He made me target, yes. What was that like? I mean, when someone that big a figure uses your name and accuses you of doing that, I mean, what kind of impact does that have on you? Well, uh, it's even more funny. He didn't use my name. He was just showing my picture, my photo. And he said, this lady <laughs> lost our elections. So how on earth did you react to that? I imagine your phone was pinging. Uh, rather social networks, there were a lot of threats I received by email, by messages, but on, on social networks. Well, yeah, it was not nice. Not nice. So, so just give us a little insight into that, because very few journalists get to the point where the people they are targeting, especially people with a platform as a you know a senior politician at a national level, actually go and single them out. So, I mean, presumably this came completely out of the blue. How did you react? Well, I was, of course, I was ignoring and uh, we made fun of it a bit. But somewhere back in your brain, it, it all gathers and, you know, it's just very exhausting and of course I also needed to take care uh, of the rest of my team that work on the project because you know we were receiving like hundreds of messages daily accusing us of influencing elections and uh, that we are rats and that we need to you know that there's the water boiling for well that's a bad word so I wouldn't use it. Pete, you, you must have been watching this aghast, or, or, or how did you respond and react when you saw this happen in, in the Czech Republic? I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a horrible thing to to see. I think you know. I mean, you expect brickbats as a journalist, don't you? I mean, that that, that comes with the territory. But th this sounds like it was another level. Yeah, it's where you see someone singled out so explicitly that it's it's actually worrisome. Uh, you know, these people are extremely powerful powerful individuals. Either you know, the people that we write about tend to be public figures with a lot of public power or organised crime figures or extremely powerful businessmen, corrupt businessmen. So, you know, you, you know that these are powerful people who are willing to go to extreme lengths to protect the money or the power that they have. And so when you see someone singled out so explicitly, it's, um, you know, it's, it's extremely worrying. Uh, you know, there's, there is a long history, uh, tragic history of journalists being singled out for even for physical violence as well, all over the world. And we work with a lot of reporters who operate in these extremely vulnerable environments. And for us, like building security protocols and uh, trying to be ready to react, it's all very important. But when you're caught in the moment, you kind of really worry that what you have 
available to you, the tools you have available to protect your colleagues? You worry that whether they're sufficient. Yeah, and, and obviously you have to develop that thick hide, but but that's still, as Pablo, you said, you know, it still gets to you at the back of your mind. It still tears away at your daily thinking. So so just take me through the timeline. You published the article, he lost the election, he then accused you, not by name, but by showing your image to his supporters and, and blamed you for him losing the election. How did the next few weeks play out? Did you lie low? Did you respond? What what happened? Of course we responded. We published on our website the answers to the things that he was saying, like trying to explain that there was a global deadline on publishing this project, that we didn't pick up the date to influence elections and so on. But I guess people don't read. <laughs> so, so, but no, we, we did not lay low because I still feel safe in my country. And we, we did some brief evaluation of the messages we were receiving and, uh, and we decided it's not that serious that we would ask for police protection or any kind of like this quite radical step. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because nowadays everyone has a platform to voice their opinion and it's sorting out the serious threats from the knuckle draggers who are just mouthing off. But again, very dramatic, obviously, to be in that position. I know it's very serious because you've lost a colleague in the last few years investigating a different story. I'm talking specifically about your colleague Jan Kusiak, who sadly was murdered along with his girlfriend. And I don't necessarily think that people understand the risks that journalists are taking, especially investigative journalists, when they're looking into organised crime and things happening in jurisdictions where the rule of law perhaps isn't as strong as it could be. How did losing a colleague affect you? Um, the first three years were really difficult because... You know, you, you feel like you want to, like when I received the message about the matter, I just wanted to, you know, lock myself in the bathroom and cry. But at the same time, I knew that if I would do it, I would fail. Maybe not as a journalist, uh, but definitely as a friend. So we created a team of journalists from Slovakia and we understood that we need to finish all the stories that Jano started just to, 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 to send the message like you can kill a journalist but it wouldn't prevent the story from being published so we published the stories we worked hard but you know that uh, it was probably the worst thing regarding my psychological profile that I could do because instead of you know trying to, to, to convince my brain that it happened in the past and I'm not in danger. I digged into the stories and, and, and I investigated the murder and I went through, you know, the, the forensic reconstruction of the shooting and, and, uh, and I went to the house, to the crime scene and there was still blood and, and it was quite damaging to my well-being. So, so yes, that's difficult. Andre Babish must have known that you had been through this experience when he put that picture up of you in front of his supporters. I don't think he really cared. Because he was essentially making you a target. Yes, but he also needed to explain to the people who voted for him what happened and why he lost. And I was the easy explanation. Given what you've been through over the, the past few years, I mean, no one would blame you for walking away from, from journalism. What is it that's kept 
you going on this kept kept you determined to work on on these very knotty very difficult and sometimes dangerous stories well first of all i have great colleagues and and it's just you know like really they are great motivation and great support and uh, they keep me going and i'm talking about uh, people like pete from OCCRP, but also about my Czech colleagues. And at the same time, we, we just can't give up the fight, you know, and uh, and say, okay, maybe someone else should do it, because I still believe it's a, it's a job that makes sense. Because, you know, we, we, we just, all of us probably, we want to see the better world and, and not really giving up the fight with the bad people. And if we would give up, then we can just, you know, probably <laughs> exiled to some deserted island or forest or something and, and, and cry. Are you okay now? Are you, how are you feeling about your work and yourself personally now, given what's happened to you and what's happened to your, your colleagues in, in the past few years? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I was born optimist and, and happy person and I'm not giving up on it. So, you know, I, I may have a dark moments, but, you know, overall, my life is beautiful. I also think that what we see here at OCCRP and from the member centres who are the people really out in the field doing the doing the most dangerous reporting and putting themselves in the firing line. Because I don't think anybody goes into investigative journalism to, to make money, you know, so people go into it because they believe in it and they believe they're doing something important and have some great important public interest. And, you know, in the daily churn of what we do as journalists, which can be spending an entire day reading loan documents, you kind of forget that the end product has this massive impact in the real world. And, and then there are incidences, uh, sudden moments like what happened with Jan that really snap you back to reality and realize, make you realize what you're, what you're dealing with when you're reporting on these kinds of figures and how, and how important that is. And, and in order to keep going, I mean, what I found since joining OCCRP, very much like what Pavla said, is just a sense of obligation to my colleagues really immediately because we editors at OCCRP are not really putting ourselves directly in the firing line. We're, we're trying to help as best we can to produce the best stories that have the best impact. But the obligation we have to those reporters who are out there doing that kind of reporting, the people that Pavla is reporting on and, and all of her journalists that she works with at her centre and, and the centres across the world. We owe, we owe it to them to keep going, you know, and, and, um, and to do the best job we can. And as someone who's come from a more mainstream media background, I mean, I, I, my experience of newsrooms is broadcast media. How have you found the OCCRP as an organisation and how does it differ from traditional news media in your experience? There's a real commitment to doing a story right you know these stories that OCCRP does generally are much more gnarly and difficult and complicated and risky than most newsrooms are willing to take on um, so I worked as a reporter in uh, in Africa for Newswires and for The Guardian for a while and um, and there really the emphasis and the onus is on daily news spot news and you're trying to churn out a couple of stories every single day and the sorts of things that people at OCCRP work on are not done in a day and they really require a, a commitment of resources and just manpower and uh, just energy to be able to un unpick some of these incredibly difficult and complex stories. And also, I just find that the people that we work with in the member centres and, and OCCRP direct employees who are out 
acting as reporters are just unbelievably committed and to be honest kind of crazy <laughs> most of the people I work with are slightly nuts super committed to their stories super committed to the patch that they're working or the beat that they're working and it's it's been it's been energizing and engaging in a way that no other reporting I've ever done or no other journalism I've ever done has even come close to there's a real sense of camaraderie first of all but also there's a kind of really brilliant dry slightly gallows humor I think that's shared among a lot of journalists working in this in this field and you know one of the things I've found since I joined uh, joined the organization is just how much I've actually enjoyed being around colleagues because it's uh, it's actually really everyone has a really good time most of the time it's just really great fun I mean we had a gathering global gathering uh, a couple of weeks ago and had a big party at the end and you've got to be able to let off steam a little bit um, when people are operating under under such pressure and only really the people you work with can can understand that. Just explain to me member centres, because people might not realise how the OCCRP operates with regard to the relationships it has with news organisations in various territories. You can kind of think of it as a sort of federal system. So there are a few of us employed centrally directly by OCCRP who work as editors, and there's a, a sort of handful, a few dozen reporters. And then there are member centres, which is investigative journalists, investigative journalistic outlets in various countries who are affiliated with OCCRP and are very closely connected and they will do their own reporting in their own country in a in a normal way but also where they feel they have a really interesting cross-border transnational organized crime or corruption story they might bring that story to the sort of central OCCRP organization pitch it and if everybody likes it and thinks it's going to work then we all work on it together and that's where we can start to bring in member centres from other relevant countries to the story. Because really what OCCRP is, is is just about grounding a network and trying to have a network of journalists who are brilliant investigators who understand their own countries and their own their own beat and then connect them with people who are in other countries where there's a story that's relevant. So you have international finance flows across borders with no checks but the police in each country are constrained by their borders. Well, we want our reporters to be able to cross borders with no checks as well. And that's the only way you can kind of report on international crime and international corruption that is unrestrained by these by these kind of national boundaries. So so that's that's the idea. So you have these member centres in each country with a central OCCRP kind of coordinating uh, body. And the OCCRP itself is funded by what philanthropic trusts or, or in, in individuals, because this is one question that, that people often ask. Um, you know, how, how do you get the funding to put together such long and knotty investigations, which are obviously incredibly time consuming and in some cases may go completely nowhere? How do you how do you actually keep going? There's a very important firewall between the journalistic side inside OCCRP and the side that makes the money. And I think that is very important because we do definitely have donations from uh, sometimes there are government funds that are looking at promoting transparency and democracy. An interesting development recently, which relates to this conversation, though, is that, you know, since sort of 2016, we've lived in an era of these these great big, these massive leaks. And that is something that's slightly leveled the playing field in terms of investigative journalism, because we've been able to hold to account people who were acting with quite a lot of impunity prior to that, the extremely wealthy and the extremely corrupt and the extremely criminal who were making use of this, this global financial system built by bankers and accountants and lawyers to allow, to, allow them to remain secret owners of companies and to, and to avoid taxes. And I think that comes back to your question, Nick, about like why Babish would even have his name 
on one of these companies. Isn't that shocking? But he put his name on it in 2009. And now that's kind of been torn apart by all of these these fantastic leaks file. And I think, you know, one of the other major issues that we face that I think you've touched upon there is, is legal threats. Um, so a lot of these extremely wealthy businessmen in particular will weaponize the courts against journalists and just sue them for libel. And it might just, they may not really stand a chance of winning, but it's just trying to intimidate uh, people into not publishing stories or... These are, these are called slap, slap suits, aren't exactly, they? Exactly, exactly, yeah. yes. Um, just... I can't remember what it stands for off the top of my head. <laughs> Strategic lawsuits against public participation? Strategic right? litigation against public participation. Oh, yeah, litigation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying to use up your resources so you have to spend too much money on lawyers. You know, this is, this is a real issue and it's a real issue in the UK, obviously, where libel laws are extremely, uh, extremely difficult, extremely onerous. It's one of the most difficult jurisdictions for journalists to operate. And I think, yeah, that uh, that is a, a big part of the arms race. But I do think there's a growing public awareness of how those laws are being abused now, which is which is useful. And, and Pavla, when it comes to exposing the bad, bad guys, do the OCCRP take steps to make you feel safe or to make you safe? Do you, do you feel protected when you are doing work which could be perceived as dangerous? Yes, we even have the trainings on digital and personal safety and security. And there are, of course, procedures. Uh, what is going to happen when you are kidnapped? What is going to happen when you are in danger and you need to immediately leave the country? So, yes, I probably wouldn't be so relaxed about the job I'm doing and people I'm reporting on without this kind of a backup and knowledge. Because I, I think people are fascinated by the craft of of this kind of journalism and it's not just about personal safety is it Pete it's about uh, information safety and data security and and how to make sure that your phone isn't compromised etc I mean do you do training and, and do you get involved in things like that as well yeah all the time you know I mean we reported last year on the um, the Pegasus project which looked at the Pegasus software produced by it's the Israeli spyware yeah the Israeli spyware exactly which can you know hack your phone and uh, basically uh, record you, monitor where you are. Um, I mean, it can do anything. It can do more than the user can do with the phone. But it, that really, reporting on that project really opened our eyes to the kinds of threats that are out there and how kind of, how many governments have access to that kind of software, even private companies have access to that kind of software. So if you're annoying somebody in a more authoritarian government who has access to this stuff, I mean, they could have been recording any conversation you have with any source. And and that's what really keeps you up at night, I think, for me as an editor, is not only the threats to reporters in difficult areas, like I'm working with a reporter who's been working in, in the Middle East and has come under threats, and it just, you go through all the protocols that, that Pavla mentioned, and we have all, all these things in place, but it still makes you, still keeps you up at night wondering, you know, what's going to happen when they go on this reporting trip. And then protection of sources, which is the most paramount thing in journalism. And, and then you realise that, you know, there are bad guys out there with the kind of technology that allows them to record you speaking to them, even when you think you've got a secure line. That's extremely worrisome. So we have a lot of training around that, how to have good digital hygiene and um, how to try, try to make sure that you have good physical security as well. To pick up on the points made by Pavla and Pete, I spoke to Will Natras, a British journalist based in Prague, to get his views on corruption in the Czech Republic and hear where he thinks the country is heading politically.
the revelations kind of confirmed what people thought about Babish, I think, and they rammed home just a few days before the vote that there were serious questions to ask about about his personal dealings and his personal kind of relationship with power. So it's hard to say how much it actually influenced the vote because I think Czech politics is very is very polarized and it's also extremely polarized when it comes to Babish's personality. So to some degree, people have such fixed opinions of the man that that it's hard to say whether they would have changed their minds. But I think that coming as it did so close to the vote, it really focused everyone's minds on this problematic aspect of his of his character. How big a deal is corruption seen as in, in the Czech Republic? Or how big a problem is it? <laughs> it's seen as a big problem. The difficult thing when we talk about corruption is that, I mean, Babish is it's a huge topic with him. But at the same time, it's something which is, to some extent, seen as touching on people of all different parties and different political persuasions. It's not just focused on one man. So since the new government came in, there have been corruption scandals about about political parties in the in the coalition, in the in the new coalition. And so essentially what happens is you have anti-corruption is like a is to some extent a platitudinous statement here because every party says it's anti-corruption and it comes in to combat the corruption of the previous regime. And then the new and then it's like the new government there's corruption scandals emerge and then a new movement comes up to tackle that kind of corruption and it goes in a kind of in a kind of circular thing. Where where is the corruption in, in in Czech society? Is it within the government? Is it the way that contracts are awarded, etc.? I mean, or do you or do you literally have to grease the wheels in every part of your daily life? I don't think it's that. It's not that endemic. Recent scandals have been to do with things like public tenders in in transportation, things like this, or construction, so on and so forth, bribes and so on. It's very well publicised, and there there are so many scandals. One imagines that it's that it must be kind of uh, fading to some extent, those kind of nefarious goings on. But they do seem to to come up with quite alarming regularities. One of the things that Pavla said was that she still feels like she's got a free press in the Czech Republic. Is that something mm. that, that, is that a feeling that you would share as a journalist working in the, in the same area? Yeah, I would actually. I, I Much more so than than in some other countries in this region, especially when it comes to the to the the national kind of broadcasters and things like Czech television. A lot of rural people and and social conservatives would say that they have a kind of uh, metropolitan liberal leaning bias, and that's a very common claim. And Babish, of course, would say that they're biased against him. But at the same time, I think that you can say what you what you believe and without fear of being <laughs> of any kind of bad consequences. I mean, I think that comparatively speaking, it's pretty good here. Yeah. What kind of political conversations are being had in the Czech Republic now, especially in the light of what's happened in Ukraine? And where does Babish fit into all this? Because of course, you've got the EU and discussions about where the EU should be going. But of course, you've got this threat or perceived threat potentially from the East. The geopolitical orientation of the country is a big ideological talking point in a way that uh, we're not really as uh, familiar with in the UK, because because of the history and also the culture, the orientation between East and West is is a huge debate in this country at the moment. All the presidential candidates and the and the current government are quite clearly pro Western and pro EU, pro NATO. And Babish is is pretty much the same. But at the same time, there's a large body of of opinion uh, in certain sections of the population which are very skeptical of the EU, very skeptical of of the West, very sceptical and even slightly hostile towards America. Uh, and they're very dubious about kind of Western progressive values. Did anyone ever get to the bottom of where that 15 million euros came from? Uh, I don't think that that case has ever been really resolved. Babish just 
dismisses these things to a large extent. I mean, he claims that he that he did everything in good faith and that he paid all the you know he he paid all the taxes that he was supposed to and that there was no intention to 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 do anything wrong. Pavlos spoke about Babish pointing to a picture of her shortly after he lost his prime ministerial election when that story broke mm. and the attack that she felt herself under as a result of it. She obviously got a huge social media response but also was was quite concerned at at the time. Is Babish an enemy of journalism in your view? That's a good question. Um, he is deeply implicated in in questions about media freedom in this country because he, aside from the question of him being intimidating to journalists, uh, he has a very confrontational attitude with uh, with the press, a very adversarial kind of relationship. As with many politicians, you know, he he to some extent he thrives off that conflict. Like with his current trial, he he encourages people not to really believe what they're told in the media, which that's actually one of the biggest problems in this country and in the wider region is that people are increasingly skeptical about what they read in the mainstream media. And to some extent, people like Babish drive that change because Babish, when it comes to his own affairs, he encourages people not to believe what they read. But at the same time, somewhat ironically, given that he encourages people not to trust the media, he also actually owns the media or, or certain newspapers and various, various newspapers in the Czech Republic, big broadsheets. And so whether he's an enemy of journalism, I think he's a he seized some journalists as his enemies quite unequivocally and he's there are serious doubts about the impartiality of course of his own media and there are lots of people who claim that if he's if he's in a leadership position if he's prime minister or if he's president then that's a serious problem for media freedom in the re in this country as well That's Will Natras, a freelance journalist based in the Czech Republic. My thanks to him and, of course, to Pete Jones and to Pavla Holkova, who put together the OCCRP's expose of Andre Babish. If you want to give it a read, the finished article is on the OCCRP's website, and its full name is Anti-Graft Czech Prime Minister Used Offshores to Disguise Funds for French Chateau. If you can't remember all that, you can just Google OCCRP and Andre Babish. We tried to make contact with Andre Babish to ask him about the points raised in the podcast, but he didn't respond to our emails. And since we recorded this podcast, a Czech court ordered Andre Babish to apologise to Pavla Holkova for falsely claiming that she was paid to undermine his pre-election campaign. Babish was ordered to post his apology on Facebook and to leave it there for at least seven days. Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley with research by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and Ria Musa at Rethink Audio. The series is a Little Gem production for the OCCRP. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to ensure more tales reach you the moment they're published in future. My name is Nick Wallace. Goodbye.